Look today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Susan Claremont of the Hamilton Spectator. Columnist, you read her all the time. She's got, I don't know, millions of Twitter followers now. People are tuning in just because they follow you on Twitter. Thanks for coming in. It's good to be here, Scott. We, um... There's all kinds of things I want to get to. We're going to have some typical Susan Claremont-esque stuff coming up today. Oh. But, well, I know, it's, uh, it's Dark Friday. Dark and depressing. So Sad. Some, maybe, a little, Horrifying. some of it. Susan, uh, you heard this story this week. A lot of people did that. And I'm going to probably pronounce his last name wrong. But Marco Muzzo, Marco Muzo, the mm-hmm. guy who, uh, people will remember this story. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison back in 2016. He drove drunk. He, he caused a crash that killed three kids and their grandfather and seriously injured their grandmother and great-grandmother. It was a, I mean, a debacle. It was a horrible, a tragic, tragic, horrible story that was entirely avoidable Yep. because he was, I think it was three times over the legal limit. He was, there was nothing defendable about his, nothing. Anyway, uh, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison two years ago and he has a parole hearing next month. And this follows, I know you covered, we, you were on here the night of the Bernardo parole hearing. Yeah, last week. And with the Terry Lynn McClintock thing being moved to the Aboriginal in Healing Lodge a few weeks before, there is a real sense that our system is somehow not getting it. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I cover a lot of parole hearings. I go to a lot of them. And um, this kind of stuff happens all the time. We just often don't hear about it. Um, and when the public does hear about it, it drives them, them wild. I mean, people really believe that, you know, the sentence that you're handed by a judge in the courtroom is the amount of time you should be spending in, in prison or in Or jail, close to it. Or close to it. And um, that's not how the system works for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but, yeah, I mean, offenders are can apply for, um, uh, you know, escorted absences and and unescorted absences and day parole and you know we had Paul Bernardo arguably the 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 most notorious criminal in Canadian history applying for full parole and and he's designated a dangerous offender and yet he still had a parole hearing so um you know there are reasons for parole hearings uh most offenders are going to get out eventually anyways and so this is a way of transitioning them back into society but you know my thoughts are always with the the victims and the families of victims who have to go through this process and it's it's a brutal um a process that that rips all the scabs off any healing that they've done. Well, that, there are two issues here, and you touch on I think the one that hits very close to home for many people right off the bat, and that's the families because these are hearings that I mean they don't have to attend, but they generally will because they want to put up a fight to say keep the person in prison, and their voice is pretty loud. They're, they have a loud voice in this, or at least emotionally. Yes. A loud voice. But it's it seems cruel almost a lot of these times. It, it really is. I mean, um, parole hearings are far more intimate than what goes on in a courtroom. Courtrooms are, are um, you know, fairly big spaces. There are um, police officers in there. There are court security officers. There's just the way a courtroom is physically set up. Um, a victim or a victim's family is sort of separated in the courtroom from from the accused. Parole hearings take place in tiny little rooms, and you have to go into a prison to get there. You know, you're in a space that is uncomfortable to begin with, and then you're in a tiny, tiny space with the person who murdered your loved one or who sexually assaulted you. And you're sitting as far away as we are from each other right here. So last week when the Bernardo Pearl hearing was on, how far away were the Frenches from Paul Bernardo in that hearing? They could have literally reached out and touched him in the courtroom, the man who, who raped and murdered their daughters. And again, like there, uh, we want to get to the other issue in a couple of minutes, but this one in particular, that just seems like, it, I mean, we have to have some sort of parole system, I think. I think that, I mean, there has to be some Agreed. way for these people if they have rehabilitated themselves to show that they have a chance to get out. Yep. But it seems that allowing it to happen seemingly so quickly 
Uh, in this case, uh, Muzo has been in jail for two years. He has a 10-year sentence. Right. And they're letting him have a parole hearing in two years. That, I think, not the fact that there are parole hearings. I think most people, if they really thought about it, said, listen, if I had a family member who did something wrong, I would want them ultimately to have some chance to redeem themselves. But it's the fact that it's so soon. Make them serve a good amount of their sentence and then have the opportunity to do this. Well, part of the problem with that actually happens sort of at the other end of it before they're even convicted, um, because many offenders are are incarcerated leading up to their trials, and they get some credit for that time served, mm-hmm. which means that they come up to their parole hearing sooner than one might expect. Um, but, you know, there have been some changes made, and in part thanks to um, our own local MP, David Sweet, it used to be that um, uh, offenders like um, you know, John Rollo, for instance, triple murderer, Hamilton guy who I've been to every one of his parole hearings. He, he used to go through that process every single year, dragging the the family members of his murder victims up to a prison in, in the Muskoka area, sitting in that small room. And David Sweet lobbied for changes in legislation. And now um, now these hearings happen every two years. Better. Still not great, um, definitely. And, you know, and then there's the the issue of how secretive these hearings are. Let's take a break and get back with that, as well as the idea of where is the balance? It seems to be missing, a lot of people believe, between rehab, rehabilitation of these people, but also deterrence and punitive sides of this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're chatting about... Well, the latest story is Marco Muzo, who's the driver who killed three people and hurt two others seriously while he was driving impaired. You know the story. He got 10 years in prison and two years into his sentence, he is up next month for a parole hearing. And Susan, we were talking before the break about how this kind of thing drives people bananas. The first part, as we discussed, is because the families of the victims usually, they don't have to, but they usually go to this. and That's Mm -hmm. terrible. But... The other side is there seems to be, I know that in Canadian law, Canadian justice, we want rehabilitation. We want people to come out of the jail and be ready to get back into society. And that makes sense. But there somewhere has to be a balance between the rehabilitation of the offender and also a deterrence to people for doing this and a, frankly, a a, a punitive side of this to say, you did something really wrong. You've got to do some serious time here. And I don't know if that balance is being found right now. Well, and it's it's more complicated when you also consider that um, it's, offenders can be in prison for years and not have access to any kind of rehabilitation. Um, I hear that over and over again at parole hearings, you know, um, uh, convicted killers who have been in for 15, 20 years and are finally getting into an anger management didn't program. have access or didn't take advantage didn't have access so you know we're leaving it so far into their into their sentences and if if you are applying for parole after 2 years you probably haven't had any programming or very little programming so you're now you know starting to make that transition to come back out into into society and I don't know whether, apart from sitting in a, a cell, whether you have done anything to improve your life, improve yourself, make yourself a better person, make it less likely that you're going to reoffend. I don't believe that anybody has ever gotten drunk and got behind the wheel of a car and said, oh, I'll go out and kill someone because I'm only going to get two years in jail. I don't, I don't, that's not the thought process. But I do believe that if more people had longer heavier, harder sentences that it might make someone think longer and harder about when they are about to do something like that, about what the consequences could be. And I, and again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe when people are in that position, they don't think about anything. Well, I've heard hardened criminals say that they have thought about that and their decision was, eh, I'll do the time. It's not that bad. It's not that long. But is that hardened criminals because they've been in prison before? But I'm talking about someone who's you or me or someone who's a 
as far as we know, Marco Muzo was not a hardened criminal. He's a guy from a privileged background who made a decision to get behind the wheel of a car when he was yes. drunk. And those are the people I'm talking about. Yeah, the people who are the, you're right, but the people who are those kind of people, they're going to be in the system likely on and off most of their life, many of them. The recidivism factor is high or rate is high. But if I'm someone who's just Joe Blow, I want, I, at least I would like in the public, for them to be thinking, is this really a good move because of what could happen? And I don't think two years sends that message, not for three dead people. I I agree. I mean, it, you know, it changed the world for an entire family. And, um, you know, two years doesn't seem like much. You know, you have to put some faith in the parole board that it will do the right thing. And not and, give it. And Right. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what he's asking for. I think he's asking for uh, escorted temporary absences, which are often used to do work out in the community. That's sort of, you know, step number one um, when you start, um, you know, going back out into society. Um, but, you know, he's got a long ways to go still from there to uh, day parole or full parole. We've had governments in federal governments, federal, we've had conservative, we've had liberal, we've run the spectrum. I don't understand how we haven't had some more people besides David Sweet saying, this just doesn't make sense. We have to have a stiffer, punitive, judicial, correctional system for people who do horrendous, again, we're not talking about someone who steals a chocolate bar from the the store. but for these kind of horrendous things, it just seems like we are being too heavy on the rehab and no one has seemed to fix this in law. It doesn't seem anyway. Well, and you know, when we're talking about impaired driving, especially when it's caused deaths, I mean, there are a lot of, um, a lot of police officers, a lot of lawyers who, who believe that that should be um, in a category of, of homicide, that, that it should be, you know, akin to a manslaughter charge or, or something like that. You know, the vehicle being used as, as the murder weapon. And if it was manslaughter, if it had the same equivalent, would the minimum not have been 10 years? So uh, he would have had three, possibly three concurrent terms at least of right. 10 years? Something like that. Something like yeah. that. So, yeah. so and, and that would seemingly deter, a per, we don't know what the parole board is going to do, but that if you've got three 10-year sentences to serve, doesn't seem like anyone's going to be too lenient with you. I would think, I would hope. Well, um, stranger <laughs> things have happened. And, you know, part of the problem um, with parole hearings is that they're they're quite secretive. Um, they are technically public hearings. That's why I'm able to go. Um, you could go to Scott, but the fact is that members of the public don't often go to these things because just um, knowing about them is a bit of a feat. You have to you have to be registered. You have to there's all kinds of work that you have to do just to be notified that a hearing is coming up. Um, and then a lot of the information that comes out at a hearing is is kept very secretive. Um, you know, you don't have access to any of the documents. You don't. Um, you don't get to see medical reports. You learn very little about um, an offender's performance in the institution, and that really frustrates. Uh, you know, a do lot the families, of families get to know? No, they don't get to know gets either. To know. It's 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 secretive. So decisions are being made. Um, the parole board knows, and they are making decisions, but we don't get to hear all the reasons why they've made those decisions. I'm certainly not the only one. I've been hearing, you know, you read stuff, you see, go online, any of these stories, people, the comments on here. I mean, it makes people crazy. And just for the point you made, we got to take a quick break here, but for the point you made alone, you would think that the correction system would say, there is so much misunderstanding of how this thing operates. We've got to do something to make it more clear so the public has confidence in us. Because again, just these three things, and you say it happens all the time, but with Terry Lynn McClintock and with Bernardo having a hearing and now this one, it just, it doesn't seem like it's working. Yeah, there needs to be, I mean, you know, the easiest fix, um, which is just one of many, but the easiest fix would just be more transparency. Do, Do we know what's going on and how they're making their decisions? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you don't know making a murderer, I don't know how you don't know making a murderer because what was it about a year ago? That's all anybody was talking about. And now there's a second season out, which is uh, just as intriguing. 
Uh, Susan, you were saying in the break, you see, you watched the first season of yeah, Making a Murderer. Yeah. Not the, so you'll have to find a weekend when you have nothing on, <laughs> send the kids <laughs> off to grandma and grandpa's and just binge watch for 10 hours. But the what I wanted to ask you about was this, because we've I don't know who it was who was talking about this the other day. And I thought it was actually an interesting point, and that was so many people have watched this. Netflix doesn't give their numbers, but... They've said, I think it was the highest number of people who ever watched anything on Netflix was Making a Murderer. Okay. Is it okay to watch stuff like this because it's entertainment mm. or is mm. it kind of icky? Because there is at the root of this, a woman who actually died, who was murdered and we don't know who did it, but it's entertainment based on her death. Yeah. So that is the reason I have not watched the new, the new uh, season of it. I um I have a real problem with this stuff and you know my family will tell you my husband will tell you I you know when we go out to a movie I do not want to see anything about a murder I don't want to see anything violent and um for me that's because First of all, that's what I do at work all day, every day. I mean, I sit in real homicide trials all the time and have to look at autopsy photos. And so to me, that's not um, escaping from my usual life. And and secondly, exactly what you say, to me, that's not entertainment. I mean, these are... Um, you know, especially some of the podcasts that are out there. Like I, I saw, I saw, yeah, and and you know, I have dipped into these things because someone who does my job has to at least have some idea of what this stuff is about because it's being talked about all the time. It's influencing, um, you know, the way um, uh, the public thinks about these cases and stuff. So I have to be aware of it. But, you know, I, I saw one podcast that I didn't listen to, but it was like pairing murder cases with craft beer. For real. Like, like you know, here right, so we're, we're going to tell you a murder story, a real life murder story and discuss the case. And here's we're a beer do to it pair while, with it while drinking this beer. And that just... I'm not. I'm not good with that. Well, no. That see, I had not heard that one before. Yeah, that that to real. me is a line that is. That to me is minimizing or or almost mocking, yep. the the thing. But you did do a podcast that was on the spec dot com about I did. And, yeah. and and I think somewhere in there there is a difference between a m- mocking. Um, trying to find where that line is where it's informative it's it's news it's educate it's part of the it's telling a story and making it into a, a joke I think there yeah. is a line between there somewhere we did it, um, it it's the only like full-length um, serial podcast that the spectator has ever done and it was called covering Diane and still it's on about- the spectator website. Yeah, it's it's a it's about Diane the murder of Diane Rowendowitz and um her accused killer, her sometimes convicted killer, uh Robert Badro, who's now been tried four times for her murder. And we a couple of things that we tried to do to make this different um and and so that it was journalism and, and not entertainment. And um first of all, we weren't trying to solve this crime. You know, a lot of the podcasts, a lot of the the documentaries um, are sort of, you know, taking people through as though they're the detective and and hoping to maybe set somebody free at the end or or put somebody in prison. And that's not what we were trying to do. Um, And also, we were focusing on the journalism. Um, That podcast that we did was about 40 years of the spectator covering one murder case and walking people through all the reporting and all the, um, uh, you know, the journalism ethics around covering a story like that. Because I look at something like Making a Murder and you say about setting someone free, there's a part of this to me that is different from, say, like a Dateline NBC where it's just a story of... I can't even watch A story of a murder and there's no end goal to it. It's just, let's tell the story. And this one, it seems, and maybe I'm defending it because I like it, but it's, it is about trying to, they, you know, you believe, undo a miscarriage of justice right. through 
this documentary type series. I don't know if that mollifies the entertainment value of it because at the end you're saying, you know, there is something good. There is something positive potentially that will come out of this. Making a murderer seems to be, at least as I take it, it is about trying to miss, to, to fix a miscarriage of justice. In your mind, does that make it different? Uh, you know, I'm I'm all for advocacy journalism. I mean, that's part of my role as a columnist at The Spectator. Um, but, uh, you know, and refresh my memory, did, did they do Making a Murderer with the consent and cooperation of the victim's family? No. Well, they, no, no, they, they don't ever get directly okay. quoted in it. Because that's... That's a big thing for me, right? Whenever I do, I occasionally do big, long projects for the spectator and investigative reporting, often around um, murder trials, murder cases. And um, I always do them with the consent of the family. I've never done one that where I didn't have the consent and cooperation of the family. That's important to me. Um, and I seek that before I even start down the path of, of working on that project. They, it comes across, and I don't know if this is a fair, for people who have seen the show, feel free to correct me if you feel otherwise, radley at 900chml.com. It seems the family has been told repeatedly that Stephen Avery, in this case, did it and has believed that he did it. And even with whatever evidence has been able to come forward suggesting he didn't, they want to have someone who is responsible for their sister or daughter's death. And so I'm not, I mean, they, I, I don't think based on what we've seen in this movie, this series, that they would ever have given their consent. But does that, does that take away from the fact if there is a reason to believe that the wrong person is convicted, that they should mm-hmm. not... It, Mm-hmm. Again, t- to me, this one seems to stand somewhat alone because it, it does seem like there is a purpose to this one as opposed to just the ones on TV, as I say, that just pump out right. murder the, the, for the sake of filling an hour of your life while you have a glass of wine before bed, which again, just seems odd. It just seems odd. And then there's one in between. There's Then there's one in the middle. I don't know if you've seen this on Netflix called Staircase or The Staircase. I have not. Which is halfway between because it is the focus of it. The person they're talking to is the alleged killer, but the victim is his wife. And so the family is both defending him and wanting the, it's it's very complicated. And I'm not really sure that there is a, I'm not really sure what that one's for, but it goes back. And then we sort of have maybe veered a little off this. Is it what is your feeling about using murder and crime and everything else as fodder for TV, for radio, for podcasts, whatever else? You know, it's it's tough. I mean, clearly that's what I do in my job every day is report on this stuff. But do you see um, yourself as an entertainer by doing no, that? No, absolutely Absolutely not. And, you know, I do it because I think the public has a right to know because I think um, that justice has to be seen and not just done. And and I am often the only person in a courtroom for for these trials. If it weren't for, you know, the stuff I was writing, nobody would know whether the justice system was working properly or not. Um, I do it, you know, in honor of the victims. I do it for a lot of reasons. Um, But entertainment doesn't even cross my mind. Um, You know, there are, are lots of things that I will leave out of a story because it's, it's, too much for readers, although I've been criticized just recently for a for a, a long column I had in last week at about a particularly horrific uh, rape and murder in which I did put a lot of detail because it had never been reported before. Um, the guy pleaded guilty and it was a plea deal and I thought the public really needed to know what he was pleading to. So, you know, I, I we spent a lot of time, um, my editors and I, talking about the ethics of this. What should we do? What shouldn't we do? Um, I'm not going to say we always get it right, but we always discuss it. It's always 
consider? It's hard. I in a former life, uh, before I was writing sports and doing radio, I covered court at another newspaper, and I remember covering a murder trial. And I'm not going to share the details on the air because people are eating dinner right now and would not enjoy this. But there were huge discussions about how to actually how much we could actually say, even though it was the crux of the whole case. Someone had yeah. done something to somebody that caused them to react in a way that someone ended up dead. And the thing that that first person did was so egregious and so horrible that you're like, you have to say something, but it's not for entertainment. That's the, some of this is for entertainment and I get very skittish now with that. When I feel like I'm watching this and that person's life who died, the sole reason for their life now seems to be so that I had a fun hour of watching what happened to them. And that, that, when that's done, I feel... It's it's dirty. Exactly. I mean, I I just can't do it. I can't listen to a, you know, 10 part watch a 10 part Netflix show about it and um, you know, go get my snack in the middle of it <laughs> like I would if I was watching a movie. And it is a little bit different for sure. Life. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a lot of murder and mayhem. This could be my last visit to your show. uh, No, because, you know, uh, if we're going to talk about stuff like that and have someone who knows what they're talking about, you are the person. But yes, I mean, it is, um, there are some things. And so I I, I don't want to stay there. I want to lighten it up a bit, but we're going to slowly lighten it up. Because I did want to ask about this one story and your thought on this one. You probably heard this story this week about this Canadian tourist who was over in Thailand. Did you hear this oh, story? Yeah. And she got the herself drunk totally tourist. slobbered yeah. drunk yeah. and then spray painted some artifact or some tourist area in Thailand. I, I, a wall. A wall. Yeah. yeah. And now is facing 10 years in prison in Thailand and is totally upset and totally fearful and totally begging Canada to help her and all the rest. Are you, do you feel sympathy towards this person or do you feel like if you were this worried about it, why did you do it? Uh, it's, oh, what a stupid thing to do, huh? Like really stupid. Um, yes, I feel sympathy. It was a, a dumb, dumb thing to do. She was apparently incredibly drunk. She graffitied a wall. I've seen pictures of the wall and I'm not sure how you would know that it was an ancient wall as opposed to just a wall. Um, so she shouldn't have done it. Bad, bad, bad. But, um, you know, I, I would hate to see her rot in a prison in Thailand for 10 years. I, Cause I don't imagine their prisons are like ours. And from last hour, I don't imagine their correction systems gives them parole hearings after two Probably years. Probably not. I mean, these, this story is similar to, we had the story about the American guy who ended up dying basically in North Korea because he took a sign off a wall while he was a tourist there. And remember about 10 years ago, there was a story about someone who threw some gum. I think it was in Singapore or somewhere on the street. He littered and got 50 lashes or something with a rattan cane. We should just put them all on that Titanic, the it's, replica. And that can, they, that's where they can vacation so that... I just we keep peace in the world. My issue is I, I agree with you on the sense that yeah, I don't want them to rot in jail for ten years for vandalizing a wall. But what I don't understand is who goes to another country and thinks they are allowed to do these things, or they somehow have the okay. To, I don't. I don't. I don't get why you would go somewhere else and decide that you are okay to damage something in someone else's country. I mean, let alone here. I don't know. I mean, these do not seem like the brightest of people. And so uh, I would think chances are good that they would do the same sort of thing back home as well. It's just the punishment is much uh, harsher in places like Thailand. But surely most people, and you're right, and surely most people know, though, that the rest of the world is not necessarily like Canada. She was really drunk. I understand. I understand that. (laughs) Again, bad, bad, bad. Don't do it. But you've got to have some compassion for a stupid drunk person who spray paints a wall. I I mean, you know, 
it, the punishment has to fit the crime. What she did was bad. It was an important wall. I don't know if she realized that. <laughs> I don't know if anyone knows why still it was important. Um, but, you but know, if you 10 go, years is, is a bit much. If you travel, though, should you not know that other places in the world... I mean, again, I know she was drunk, but drunk is not really a defense. I... I I'm, I'm, I got to admit, I'm having a very hard time drumming up a lot of sympathy for this. A 10 year seems excessive, but that's their law. How about law. just like sending her back to Canada? She can never go to Thailand again. She's our problem now. Oh, great. Because she sounds like she, you know, there would never be any problems here in Canada. I, just get loaded drunk again. Do we have, do we have ancient walls in Canada? Well... I'm sure we do. Uh, House of Commons. If, if you had gone and spray painted the House go. of Commons, the outside or the inside wall, you gone in on your tour and spray painted the Speaker of the House's seat. But she still, she wouldn't have got 10 years for that. Well, no, here she probably would have just had an interview on some station and been seen as, you know, fighting the power. Could be, yeah. You know, she's an anarchist who's fighting the power. Way to go, whatever your name is here. What's her name? Uh, uh, Brittany Schneider. She's fighting the power. Way to go, Brittany. I don't know. What Sticking did, it to what, the man. What did she spray paint? Did it say something? Or was it? Uh, spray painting an ancient wall in Thailand. Okay, so it's a the Thai. Uh, now, my, forgive my pronunciation. My Thai is very poor because I don't speak any of it. But it's the Tha Phi Gate. If And again, I'm sorry if P- Thai people are listening and I've completely mangled that. T-H-E, the, it's almost the Phi, P-H-A-E, Ta Phi Gate, a historic landmark in Chiang Mai. And she says she's been out and was ridiculously drunk when they defaced the brick wall. But again, drunkenness doesn't make you do things. It reduces your inhibitions. So probably this is, I, I'm not guessing this is something that she had never thought of or that, I don't know. I I saw this story and again, I just, I, I heard some people saying, oh, like you did, oh, just, you know, it shouldn't be a penalty. It's like, if you're over there, if you're in their world, you live by their rules. And if they have 10 years for this, if they, well, I mean, I suppose life in prison would be a little harsh, but don't do stuff. You don't think 10 years is harsh? Oh, I think it's harsh, but I think it's their rules and you should follow their rules when you're there. I mean, if I go to North Korea, like what's his, Otto Warmeyer, I think was his name did. Look, it was tragic what happened to him where he got put into a hard labor camp and came home basically dead. That was horribly tragic. But I'm guessing that somewhere in the back of his mind, when he went to steal that sign, he knew this was a bad idea. Not thinking he was going to end up, and, and as I say, I'm not in any way belittling the fact that the people there beat him to death. But I think if you're going to travel outside of the friendly confines of our country, you have to be a little more cautious to say, this is not Canada. We don't have, they don't have the same human rights codes that we do. Yes, she she shouldn't have done it. She should have been more cautious, but we are where we are. And, you know, I like to think that we are not going to just sit back and allow a Canadian to spend 10 years in a in a prison in Thailand for, you know, a, a, a property crime, a, a property crime of, you know, that has um, bigger consequences than drawing on the bathroom stall. But still, um, nobody was killed. It was nonviolent. She made a big mistake. You know, if, I, I think you've got to have some sympathy. Oh, I'll have some sympathy. Some. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not really seeing it. <laughs> I, 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 you know, and maybe it's because I've traveled a lot. Uh, maybe it's different because her mom says this was her first time out of the country. Or first, first time out of the country or first time there. I can't remember if, uh, uh, where is it here? Uh, her first trip abroad. And that was the the guy that she was with. And they it was his first trip. So I don't know. But maybe having traveled, you understand a little better that the world is not that, I mean, to me, that's what the this whole story becomes. You have to realize the world is not Canada. We are not the norm in the world. We really aren't. Same with the states. It's not the that's not normal. Nor, what North American society is is not normal. Where you would do something and you would have a judge, uh, a lawyer appointed to you, and you would have the benefit of the doubt, and courts would 
allegedly say you're innocent until proven guilty and all the rest. I mean, you go to a lot of places, you better be sure that you're following every letter of the law. Absolutely. Maybe there's the lesson out of this whole thing. It's got to be some lesson because otherwise, 10 years for a spray paint. I hope it was a nice piece of art she drew. I, I'm afraid to ask what she actually drew. We know what most spray paintings are about, so. Either letters or. Yeah. <laughs> inappropriate. Thing. Maybe that's why. That's why I was wondering, what did she draw? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Because we had an election this week, and we all know what happened with that. Fred Eisenberger won, and congratulations to him. He beat Vito Scro, and we know that all but one incumbent was re-elected. And we know that there are a few new counselors in wards that were open. But there was a story in the paper uh, by Matt Van Dongen today and online today about looking at the ward breakdowns of who voted for who and where the votes were and everything. And there was a map that shows you which wards went for which candidate in the mayoral race. And I think it's in a lot of ways very predictable that the urban areas of Hamilton voted for Fred Eisenberger and the rural areas voted for Vito Scro, who was against the LRT, and that seems to be the dividing line. The old city of Hamilton versus largely, the amalgamated largely. Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, it, there were parts of uh, the more downtown areas, if you call it that, of Ancaster and Dundas, voted for Fred Eisenberger, but all the areas on the rural side and the and the outside of the city voted for Vito Scroll. How is it possible for Hamilton to be governed, to be run, to be even seen now as one city? Because it really looks, when you look at the councillors and how they vote on things, mountain versus downtown, rural versus urban, when you look at the voting, it looks like we have two cities that operate under one umbrella. Yeah. I mean, we geographically, we are. We're a huge city, you know, space-wise. Um, but do you think that all of this comes down to LRT? No. Do you think that's what... It was in this election. That was the that was the thing. But I mean, you go back, it was, it was area rating about whose yeah. taxes are higher or lower, what services you're getting. LRT, it is uh, amalgamation. There's always been something that has divided the two parts of Hamilton. And I don't know at this point that I don't see how you end up bringing everybody together. I just don't, I don't see it. I don't know how good luck to him, but I don't know how Fred Eisenberger is going to be seen as a mayor who is going to be popular or making decisions, even in the best interest of the city that he's doing his best job. I don't know how he can be seen as that guy in many parts of the city. I just don't. And it would have been the same if Vito Scro had won. That the people downtown would have said, that's not my mayor. But isn't that what municipal politics is? I mean, name me a city where um, where everybody's on the same page, where every councillor has the the same kind of um, uh, you know voter base and, and the same kind of issues on their plate. Um, we're a diverse community in every kind of way, and, and that's a good thing. And, you know, having rural counselors with a strong voice and a, and a big presence at uh, the council table is is important because a lot of our loudest voices, as we know, are, um, are you know, the old city of Hamilton counselors uh, from often from uh, the lower city. So yeah, I haven't seen, for example, I haven't seen a map like this from Toronto let's say, to see where voting for John Tory or, you know, other cities came from. The difference, I guess, is that in Hamilton, rather than pockets, it seems, of areas that would vote for Tory or vote for someone else, this is a, a pretty pretty predictable map that you have in Hamilton. That I, I think most people before this election could have predicted, now maybe not exactly which war, which areas, which polling areas exactly, but... I think most people would have predicted that somehow at the end of this election, the suburbs, the rural areas would have been for Scro and the downtown would have been for Eisenberger. And if it's that predictable, I mean, it certainly, that's what I expected to see. I don't know about you, but if it's that predictable, I think, so how can, how can this city be like one city? Or, maybe, or does that even matter? Does it, I mean, as long as you're paying your taxes, do we even care? 
Well, sure, we care, but we're not going to, we're never going to agree on every issue. I mean, there, and LRT, again, is, is a perfect example of that, right? I mean, um, I think probably voters who are living out on, um, you know, in Flamborough may not see the value in LRT the way somebody living in, in Ward 2 will. So, um, so I get that, but you know, I think uh, a good mayor is going to listen to everybody and um, going to turn to the councillors who represent those areas that, that, you know, maybe didn't vote for Mayor Fred in the first place and, and make sure that they're listening to what they have to say. Let me go back to that question, though. Does it matter if we have unanimity or close to it as far as support for whoever's in office? Or, or or not even the support of who's in office. There is a sense, and you tell me if you disagree, because it's totally fine. I get the sense that a lot of people in the rural area look at the people in the downtown and see a bunch of elite urbanists, and the people downtown look at the people in the rural area and see a bunch of backwards rubes who don't want to see progress happening. And so it's not even just about your elected officials. It's a view of, you know, you go on social media, if you didn't support LRT, you were an anti-progressive, you were hoping to hold the city back, you right. wanted to go backwards. This isn't even just about a topic. This is about the view of your fellow citizen and how backwards or idiotic they are. Agreed. Um, that That's what it's come down to for a lot of people. And But, you know, I like to think that that kind of friction is going to create a, a good, healthy debate and there's sure as heck been a lot of it around LRT and you know and and we'll we'll progress forward from there we'll you know that that's actually a good thing um I know lots of people will disagree with that and you know the and and that's not to say that you know um I I love hearing counselors snipe at each other and and uh, no I mean we need to be um we need to be civil. We need to. It's got to be a, a productive conversation. I, I don't know how we get to there, though. That that's that's to me the issue is because we can think that the LRT was decided in this election that it was a referendum of some kind. What's what's really right. ironic about this is that leading into this election. Fred Eisenberger had been very reluctant to talk about it being a referendum. Vito Scro said, "Oh, it's a referendum." And now that the election has happened, Vito Scro supporters are saying, well, it's not decided yet. And Fred's people are saying it was a referendum. It was a referendum. So, yeah. um, a bit opportunist there. But, but I, do, I just, I don't know how we, it's not the same level of animus and antagonism and anger and everything else that we're seeing south of the border with left versus right, conservative versus Democrat or liberals. But it's not that far off different kind of thing, but there is a divide that I don't know how you bridge the gap. I really, I just, I don't, it's, it's not nearly as angry. I don't think, but wait till the new council meets. And if the LRT comes up and there's some suggestion that it may get killed now, there will be real anger and it won't, it'll be at the counselors, but it'll also be at the people in those areas that don't support it. Right. I, yeah. I just I don't see how we and it's unfortunate. So are you are you talking about, you know, the issue of consensus? Or are you talking about a lack of civility? Because in some ways, I think I think that's an even bigger issue um, that we're fighting with each other or sniping at each that, other. That it's the way we're fighting with each other that that a debate about LRT could has become for some people a debate about um you know, uh, stereotypes and, and, um, uh, moving forward versus moving backwards. Yeah. No, I mean, no different. I, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to mention this, but no different than the stadium debate. Really? I mean, we just moved from one to the other, but I think honestly, many of the same people are fighting with the other same people in this thing. Well, I mean, it is politics is a sport here in Hamilton. You, you know, sports guy, know that. Matt, who covers it every day, knows that. Uh, I mean, our, you know, 
our voter turnout overall went up slightly this year. But, you know, if if just everybody who spent time on Twitter complaining about this stuff and we, we get out and get to the polls, I, I don't know, maybe we would have had a different outcome. Will it change anything that we now have almost a 50% female council? That we've got the highest percent? I hope it changes things. But how would it change something? I hope that, um, I hope that, you know, some decisions are made thinking about the women in this community. Um, I, I, you know, a gender lens, we hear that a lot. And um, that's not to say that every vote, every every issue has to be decided on that, but it should be considered in every issue um, in yeah. terms of, in terms of funding, in terms of, um, uh, you know, whatever the issue of the day is. I mean, let's make a point of specifically considering the gender issue. We consider the poverty issue on on most, you know, subject matter. I mean, we've made that our, our mandate in Hamilton, best place to, to raise a child. We've talked about that stuff. Um, why not specifically consider women in the equation as well? I, I would certainly agree with the idea that we should be considering women and, and issues like that. My question becomes, though, because somebody has ovaries doesn't, I don't think, make them necessarily automatically think the same way. And, and again, to go back to LRT, we had female counselors who were for it and we had female counselors who were against it. Being a woman does not make you a sheep. It doesn't make you think one particular way. So how does that, even though I agree with you on the concept that we should have, we should be cognizant of issues involving women, will it really change anything? Because you're still going to have people who are individuals thinking regardless of what gender they are. Sure, of course. But, you know, there are some issues that um, I, I think are more likely to be brought to the table like by, by women counselors. Um, you know, Maureen Wilson, who is just elected in Ward in One, Ward One um, new to council, although she has a, a, you know, she worked at City Hall for years. Uh, you know, I've heard her talk about um, planning and development in the city and the way the city is, is laid out. And, you know, for you to walk around the city at night may be a different experience than me walking around the city at night. Um, maybe not for every woman or, or every guy, but I think for a lot of us, it is a different experience and one that um, no matter how uh, you know, tuned in a, a male counselor is may not have that personal experience that a woman on on city council has. So that's an example. And you're right. I would never expect all the women on council to to be like minded all the time. But I think they're bringing a different experience to the table. Will that be something though? Honestly, that some people will be thinking because we've heard a lot in the last week since the election that we've now got this female, ca this council that's 50%, almost 50%, I think it's one short of 50%. There's seven female counselors now, female. There seems to be, it seems to be the expectation then that there will be something very different. And your point about bringing up some of these issues, yeah, I, but even when those issues are brought up, I don't know that every female counselor will stand with every other female counselor right. on and these no, issues. Right, and I wouldn't expect them to. I mean, I don't expect all the men on council to, God forbid, ever agree on on anything. Um, the first you know, time they agree it, on anything altogether. Right? I mean, we don't expect it from the men. So, and I mean, I wouldn't expect it from the women either. But I do expect, um, you know, them to bring voices to the table that we may not have had before. Bring more of those voices to the table. Just you know, we we each, you know we we bring you know our lives and our background to to what we do and i would hope that the women will have different perspectives to offer i've actually heard some people say that they expect because there is more there will be more women on council i heard someone say well i expect then there will be more civility <laughs> and i and 
I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know about that either. I, I mean, I would. That almost sounds sexist in a weird kind of way to say that somehow women will come on and there will be this genteel thing that will wash over us. I, I, these women didn't win their spots on city council by being just delicate not flowers. No, no, of course not. And, you know, I, I personally would <laughs> take offense to that because I'm not much of a wallflower either. Um, but civility is a good thing. It would um, be. You know, we had the, um, at the provincial level, we had the Donna Skelly, Andrea Horvath, debacle recently which was a whole lot about nothing but um in the end but um you know i I hope that all the counselors are civil i did i did cock an eyebrow when they said that when this person said that that this will bring more civility because do you think the women are in our newsroom bring more civility to the newsroom? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I'm terrified to answer that question on the air. It's we don't. But there is, but some people still believe that is the that there will be a ladylike flavor oh, now God. to the council. And I, again, I look at this and I think, well, if that's what you're expecting. I think you're going to be disappointed in womanhood or something because I d- I don't think that I on the last council who was the who was the number one I was going to say whipping boy but it was a whipping girl on council was was Donna Skelly was the the one counselor who was probably in the middle of more disagreements because she was very strong uh, strongly mm-hmm. opinionated on certain things and didn't come in as a genteel let's just have beautiful decorum on all these council meetings and you can agree with that or you can disagree with that, but that's I and I don't know Maureen Wilson. I may have met her, I'm not really sure. Uh I don't know uh Noreen um Narinder. I, I, uh, I think so. I haven't met her. Okay. I, I, I these people I don't know these people, but I'll be very surprised if when they come around the council table and they press their little button that they want to talk that they speak in a soft, whispering tone and defer and be demure to everybody right. else. I There's mean, no we, chance of that. Uh, well, I hope not. I hope they're there with big, strong, loud voices. That's what I expect from my city councillors. I, I w- want them to be smart and engaged and to speak up. And, you know, um, but that doesn't mean that you have to be a jerk. It doesn't mean that you have to be disrespectful. Uh, I mean, you know, we, you and I in, in the Hamilton Spectator every day, we, our opinions are there for everybody to see all the time. But I think, you know, um, we do it in a, in a respectful way because um, it reflects on us. It says something about who we are, um, as well as whoever it is we're writing about. And we, you know, we both get our fair share of being called a jerk. I don't know which one of us gets it more. I could guess. <laughs> what, what, what's your guess? I, I don't know. Based on the topics that are being written about, I would guess you may hear it a little more than I do. <laughs> Just a little. Maybe a little. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.